Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again and welcome to Space Nuts, the astronomy podcast with Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory and Andrew Dunkley, your host. Good to have your company. Hello, Fred. Hey, hi, hi Andrew. How are you going? I am very well. Good <laughs> to talk good. to you again. Um, back from a, another sojourn somewhere around the planet. Yeah, it was very quick, but uh, but very productive too. We we had um, I, I was at two two conferences, uh, one in France, one in Edinburgh, Scotland, and uh, they were both very useful conferences. So it was good. It's good to hear there's a useful conference somewhere in the world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, astronomy conferences are pretty exciting, as you can imagine. Yeah, well, uh, I don't suppose you uh, get to spend time with uh, other astronomers all that often and when you do it's it's uh, either fairly isolated or it's head down bum up and you're just too busy to to yeah that's right you know socialize so yeah. getting together so, uh, in one part of the world all at the same time would be good especially for people um who are working on one particular project so one of the meetings i was at just to briefly fill you in andrew was um in Strasbourg in France, and that was the annual collaboration meeting for something called the RAVE collaboration, which you and I have spoken about before. RAVE is an acronym for Radial Velocity Experiment, and it was um, a piece of uh, survey astronomy in which we collected the intimate details of half a million stars with the United Kingdom Schmidt Telescope, which is at Siding Spring uh, near Coonabarabran. So uh, the Australian Astronomical Observatory was very much a part of this project. What's happening now, um, because the, the, we, we finished the observations in 2013, what's happening now is really the, the analysis and the, uh, and the exploration of this huge data set uh, to make discoveries ranging from the chemistry of certain unusual types of stars out to the, the kind of um, issues like uh, other galaxies having been gobbled up by our own. So it covers a very wide range of science. And that's what makes it exciting. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Now, uh, Fred, today we are looking at a, a few other exciting things, one of them being the, um, the Juno project uh, with the arrival of uh, the Juno spacecraft at Mars. And they uh, got into... Uh, uh, it's the probably, probably Jupiter. Uh, uh, Jupiter, Jupiter. It's in Mars, it's in the wrong place. <laughs> I'm just so set on Mars, as you know. I'm always talking about it and always very interested in it. Yeah, Jupiter. It's even written in front of my face and I still said Mars. <laughs> Not <laughs> to yes, worry, I um, do that. Yeah, the Juno space probe has been captured by uh, Jupiter's gravity and is now in orbit, which is uh, pretty exciting. I, I watched it on, um, on the NASA television service online when they were doing it. And, uh, yeah, I mean, they got as exciting as... Uh, as astronomers and scientists can get, I suppose, because uh, it was pretty low-key when, when all was said and done. We'll also be looking at uh, a great effort by China to create the world's biggest radio telescope. This thing is enormous. I've seen satellite pictures of before and after of, 
yes, where right. they put it. It just blew my mind. And something you've been working on for a very long time, and we did talk about it a week or two back, uh, was um, light pollution. And now uh, Australia has a dark sky park. So we will, uh, we will look at that. But first to, um, I think it's Jupiter, Fred. Could and, be Jupiter, yes. Could be. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the Juno project. Now, this, this is astounding because... Uh, as low key as the event was, this has been a, a five-year mission so far. This didn't happen overnight. Uh, exactly, that's right. So the spacecraft, um, uh, you're quite right, uh, five years ago, uh, it was launched 5th of August 2011. Uh, and um, uh, uh, earlier this month went into orbit around Jupiter. The the orbital insertion, to use the technical term, was one of these things, it's a bit of a nail-biter because what you've got is a spacecraft that's travelling at, um, you know, several, um, well, in the region of uh, 15 to 20 kilometres per second, uh, uh, having made its journey from the Earth. And what you've got to do is slow it down so that it's captured by Jupiter's gravity. Uh, and that is a non-trivial task. Uh, it involves firing a rocket in the direction in which you're travelling to act as a braking rocket. Um, one of the things I noticed while I was over in the UK uh, uh, last week was that everybody was very proud of the fact that this rocket motor was made in Britain. So British engineering there being used to slow down Juno. But the other thing that uh, made it a nail-biter was the fact that um, Juno had to pass through part of Jupiter's intense radiation field. Uh, Jupiter has an incredibly strong magnetic field, much, much stronger than the Earth's magnetic field. And that uh, sort of focuses um, subatomic particles up to very high speeds, uh, which are potentially damaging to the electronics on board the spacecraft. Uh, that is something that will be a, a hazard throughout the mission, Andrew, because the spacecraft is designed to go relatively close to Jupiter's cloud tops, and that means passing through the radiation belts. Um, so the orbit that uh, Juno has been inserted into is what we call a polar orbit. It, it passes over Jupiter's poles, but it's also very elongated. And the idea is that it spends most of its time in, in a safe region of the Jupiter environment. Uh, but then, you know, uh, as, it, as it goes in, in, around in its orbit, periodically plunges down through the radiation uh, belts uh, and... Um, makes its measurements, takes its images and learns all the things that we want to know about Jupiter. Mm. So it sounds like there are still risks despite the uh, success of the orbital insertion, which was a critical uh, factor. I think they had to do a, like a 20-minute burn to slow yes, the thing right. down so that it got yeah. caught, in, um, caught in Jupiter's gravity, which uh, is astounding. Right. Mm. Yeah. Um, it's, not, it's not in its final orbit yet. Um, the... Um, the final orbit will, I think, be achieved in about uh, October this year. So it's, um, it's you know, the, the, there's uh, lots and lots of uh, orbital mechanics going on there, as well as the start of the, of the measurements. Uh, you might have read as well, Andrew, and I think this is great, that um, there's a sort of hardened part of the spacecraft that's designed to try and withstand the radiation fields of Jupiter, uh, which is made of titanium. It contains the most sensitive electron 
electronics and some of the computer equipment. But even uh, with that, the mission scientists are expecting the hardware itself to degrade uh, over time as as the spacecraft passes through through the Jupiter radiation belts. Mm, okay, I suppose we better talk about why they are doing why this. this? Yeah. I wouldn't uh, think they just sent it up there to see if they could do it. There's got to be yeah. there's got to be a plan. I, I hoped I hoped we'd get onto this. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so what it's all about is trying to learn about the planet itself because Jupiter, you know, Jupiter is a classic example of a of a large gas giant planet. We now know because of our explorations of the planets of other stars made with big telescopes that the that Jupiter-sized objects are relatively common. Um, so it, it's we've got one of these in our backyard, essentially, uh, only a few uh, billion kilometres uh, from the Earth. And so this is a great opportunity to study the, the planet itself and find out more about this um, kind of archetypal example, which we can then use to interpret the, the other Jupiters that we find deep in space. One of the immediate mysteries that we have, Andrew, is that the the, the other gas giants, the, the Jupiter-sized objects that we find around other stars, are, are, are very seldom, if ever, in a similar orbit in relation to their parent star to the one that Jupiter's in. Mm -hmm. Usually they're either much closer in or much further away. And that suggests that perhaps Jupiter... Uh, didn't form where it is now. Perhaps early in the history of the solar system, it formed in another part of the solar system and has migrated to its present orbit. Um, that is something that people will be looking for clues about. But it's really the internal structure of Jupiter that I think excites the mission scientists. So this mission will use um, the spacecrafts, first of all, the way it behaves under Jupiter's gravity to try and map the distribution of matter within Jupiter and also to analyse the radiation and magnetic fields to look for evidence of internal structure that really I think is quite staggering. So Jupiter's a gas giant. What we see when we look at it is the outer layers of its cloud belts. Um, it's there's no solid surface there. Um, basically, if you if you fall into Jupiter, and eventually that's what will happen to Juno, um, you just experience ever-increasing pressure. But it is thought that there comes a point when that extreme pressure turns the hydrogen in Jupiter's atmosphere into a liquid metal. Work that one out. <laughs> so, so you've got liquid metallic hydrogen, possibly, um, deep down in Jupiter's atmosphere. And, and that is thought to be why Jupiter has this intense magnetic field, because liquid metallic hydrogen conducts electricity. And since the planet's rotating uh, very quickly, it's about 10 hours, I think, its rotation period, maybe a bit less than that, um, that acts as a dynamo. So it generates electricity. It's how the Earth gets its own magnetic field, because we have a, a, a molten iron core. Mm. But uh, liquid metallic hydrogen is something quite different. And probably is, you know, has a very uh, intense, cap uh, a great capability of making very intense magnetic fields. So that would be one of the first things that people are trying to discover. And then the $50,000 question um, is, is there a rocky core underneath that? Um, because one of the models for the way gas giants form is that you start off with a rocky body a bit like the Earth. And then it sort of accretes or builds up all this gassy envelope around it. Uh, is that what Jupiter's like? We don't know. We've no idea whether there's a rocky core at the middle of Jupiter, but the instruments on board Juno will, we hope, give us some insights into that. Yeah, you would think there'd be some kind of foundation to create yes, that's a right. gas giant because yeah. um, otherwise 
how could it start to collect and turn into a, a planet? And and let's face it, this is an enormous planet. It is. It's huge. Yeah. Mm. All right. There'll be a lot more data coming out of uh, the visit to Jupiter by Juno, and we'll watch with uh, great interest over uh, how long? How long's the mission? From uh, here on, it's. Um, I believe it's uh, uh, of the order of twenty months. Okay. Uh, so so um, because by that time they think that the. <laughs> They think that the electronics will all be wrecked because of the of the magnetic field. You know, it's uh, easy to laugh at things like that. But um, when, when you plan a mission like this, you've got to be realistic about what kind of environment it's likely to suffer. So in the end, uh, the spacecraft will indeed plunge into Jupiter's atmosphere. There's a very good reason for that. That's to stop any possibility of... Um, terrestrial microbes that might have hitched a ride on Juno, uh, winding their way into some of the moons of Jupiter, uh, because the moons of Jupiter are thought to be a sensitive environment for the possibilities of life. Okay. All right. Nice to know that they're thinking like that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Remote as the odds would be, I suppose. Yes, exactly. Mm. Yeah. You're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Okay, we checked all four systems and being with a go. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, we're uh, we're looking at China. China is um, a superpower that is starting to really make uh, inroads into the into the world of astronomy. Uh, they've um, they've started putting things in space and uh, creating their own forms of mission and now they have built uh, the world's biggest radio telescope now i'm just up the road from one of the most famous radio telescopes in the world which was portrayed beautifully in the movie the dish uh, which was looking at the apollo 11 uh, mission uh, but this one is incredibly large compared uh, compared to the uh, parks radio telescope this um this thing is just uh uh, on its own scale this this is almost a planet on its own <laughs> all right i'm exaggerating but it is huge it's a, it's um I, I heard someone refer to it as the giant walk how culturally insensitive is that but it does look like one doesn't it um it's uh, just doing a quick calculation in my head it's about nine times the diameter of the parks radio dish That's so amazing. and that is pretty big yeah. <laughs> um it's it's actually got a name which is an acronym. The name is FAST, and it's an acronym for 500 meter aperture spherical telescope. Yeah, here we go again. Yeah, <laughs> um, and that relates to the idea that the 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 mirror itself, this metallic mirror, the dish of the FAST telescope, is spherical. In fact, it's not actually. It's um, it's able to be distorted to make it into what we call a parabolic shape, which is actually the shape of the Parkes dish. And it's what you need to collect radio signals. So there's a bit of a misnomer there uh, in in the title, but that's all right because it is an absolutely stunning piece of engineering. Um, it, it, unlike the Parkes dish. This does not steer around to point to different directions in the sky. Now, this is built in, isn't it? It's built into the. It's built into actually a natural hollow um, in in the landscape. Uh, it's um, in uh, Guizhou Province in southwestern China. Um, it's amazing, actually. It's the the work of the on the project started more or less at the same time as Juno was launched back in 2011, and has been completed uh, this this month. It's expected to be operational in September, and it will uh, actually 
it, it depends how you measure it, but it will be it, on some scales the world's second largest radio telescope because there's one in Russia which has a 600 meter aperture but is not a continuous surface. That's you know, that's a bit of a cheat to say yeah. 600. It's so, like in that, putting a big spike on top of a building and saying, oh no, tallest building in the world. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> exactly. It's that sort of that's thing. Anyway, um, so this, this depression in the, in the landscape is now full of this 500 meter diameter uh, telescope. I guess you might uh, think uh, as well of an, uh, an analogy with, um, with Arecibo, a very well-known American re reflecting radio telescope. Arecibo also built into a depression in the ground, but uh, this time it's in Puerto Rico. Uh, it, that has a diameter of 300 meters, so this is considerably bigger. Um, you, you might ask the question, well, if you've got something that's sitting always looking upwards, uh, doesn't that limit very much what you can see with it because you're always pointing in one direction? Yeah. And the answer is yes and no. It does limit uh, how much you can see because you can't certainly can't see as much as you can with a with a steerable radio dish. But um, by uh, mounting a sort of movable uh, station above the the dish itself, and that's where the, the radio signals are focused. You can probably see I'm making all these gestures here to explain <laughs> to your listeners what's happening. The, the radio signal is focused by the, by the dish, and you put a, a cabin or a station up there which can move around. Uh, it's actually suspended by wires and things of that sort, but that uh, can move around. So that as the sky tracks across, you move the cabin uh, in such a direction that it always picks up the same the signal from the same bit of the sky. And by the same token, you can actually move it north or south slightly as well, so that you've actually got a strip of sky that the telescope can look at in considerable detail. It's uh, really not just pointing at one one piece of sky. So uh, a pro project really designed to look for all kinds of celestial phenomena that uh, emit in the in the radio region of the spectrum, probably the early universe is high on their list of targets. They're even talking about looking at some of the planets of stars that we we already have discovered around um, uh, in the vicinity of the solar neighborhood, looking maybe for artificial radio signals there. So who knows, this telescope might be the first to discover alien intelligence out there. Yes, well, that seems to have been the angle that most news stories have focused yes, on. Right. That, yeah. and, and if you read some of them, you'll think that's all they did it for but yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah that, that would be exciting but as you and I have discussed many times the odds of finding intelligent life are, uh, are very remote even if they exist and are as advanced as we are they might have already been and gone or you know we might be, be might have been and gone before they reach the point we're at so yes, that's right. it's it's a it's a it's more than a needle in a haystack type of search but we remain ever hopeful. Uh, and I understand they'll also be spending a few years debugging this thing before it really gets going. So yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a huge project in many ways. I think, yes, I think that's right. They, the Chinese um, have got one of the, the biggest uh, optical visible light telescopes of its kind um, at a place called Qinglong. Uh, it's, it's what's called a Schmidt telescope. We have a Schmidt telescope in um, at Siding Spring, but this one's very different and, has, and is much bigger. Uh, but that project has taken a huge amount of debugging. Um, I was involved with it at the start in a sort of advisory capacity. I was very uh, honoured to be asked to do that, but it has taken a long time for it to settle down. It is now producing data, and that's excellent, but it's, uh, it's, a, it's a long process. Mm, indeed. This is Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Space Nuts. 
Now, Fred, to a project I know you've been working on for, for many, many years, and uh, we have spoken about uh, light pollution very recently, in fact, and how uh, major cities uh, do spread a lot of light, which can be a big problem for astronomers, and how uh, 80 uh, was it 80 percent of the world's population is subject to light pollution and in some countries it's 99 percent like the United States and a few other and, and you know some parts of Europe there's a lot of light coming off our planet and that creates all sorts of problems so to achieve something uh, as spectacular as a dark sky park would be um, a, a real feather in your cap I would suggest Fred you and your colleagues because that's what you've done. Um, it, it's yes, uh, that's true. But I think the feather belongs in the cap of the people of the Warrumbungal Shire, the Coonamble Shire, and the Gilgandra Shire, and indeed the city of Dubbo too. What is now the isn't it the Western Plains Regional Council uh, District? Uh, Dubbo uh, and these other shires around the Warrumbungal National Park, of course, have taken seriously the uh, lighting regulations that have actually been in place since 1990 to help ensure that we don't have completely um, ungoverned lighting developments with lights going everywhere and in particular up into the sky, which is the most damaging thing for astronomy. And actually not just for astronomers, but for everybody who wants to look at the sky, and most especially for nocturnal wildlife, which suffers greatly mm. uh, by, um, by light pollution in cities. So the Warrumbungle National Park, a beautiful area of extraordinary geology and flora and fauna, uh, now has another string to its bow. It is Australia's first internationally recognized dark sky park, which means that it's a place that you can go not just to see all the spectacular wildlife and uh, landforms, but also to see the stars. Um, it's, uh, the recognition comes actually from a body called the International Dark Sky Association, which is based in Tucson in Arizona. And they have a very uh, strict um, regulatory process for these, what they call dark sky places. There's a total of about 40 dark sky places in, uh, in the world, of which I think something like 20 are uh, dark sky parks. Um, so we've joined really a very uh, elite and select group of places where uh, you can go and see the night sky as, it, as, as our forebears did. And of course, that links in beautifully with the indigenous heritage of astronomy in Australia. We've got the oldest astronomers in, us, uh, in the world here in our, in our continent. Uh, so yeah, we're very happy, very happy indeed that this recognition has come along. It, it coincides as well, if I may just add to this, um, Andrew, that with new uh, regulations which have been developed by the New South Wales Department of Planning and Environment. So we've had planning controls in place for lighting for, well, uh, it's actually, as I said, since 1990, that's 26 years. Uh, these were getting pretty clunky and old fashioned. They don't recognize new technologies like LEDs and things of that yeah. sort. And so that has all been revisited. And um, one of the things that I'm delighted with is that there is now a, a guideline for good lighting, uh, a guideline document which has been produced by the Department of Planning and Environment with help from ourselves in the Dark Sky Committee of Siding Spring Observatory. Uh, and that explains in, <clears throat> I think, um, really very straightforward terms what you need to do to keep the skies dark. And it's not 
that we're trying to spoil anybody's fun. We're not trying to dim down cities or anything like that. We're just trying to stop the light from going upwards, which is the key issue yeah. uh, with light pollution. Indeed. Uh, I, I suppose this will be um, monitored through a local government level with, um, you know, with uh, anyone who wants to make an application for a new development will obviously have to include their lighting plans in that and the councils will therefore be able to uh, gazump anything too bright. Uh, that's exactly right. That's that's what the process is. Um, the idea is, you know, we feel <clears throat> that the councils themselves have a very, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Andrew, they've got a very important advisory role in this because they can tell you <clears throat> whether you need lighting that's, um, you know, that's sheltered under an eave or, um, or, or is otherwise contained, whether you need blinds on your windows. It actually depends on how far away you are from the observatory itself. We've got various zones that have uh, greater or lesser uh, sensitivity to, to, um, to lighting. Mm, OK, well, uh, it's underway and congratulations to all involved because I know, I know this has been a long time coming. I, I, I remember talking to you about it, uh, oh, it seems like years ago. <laughs> it was years ago. We, we actually started the process of putting in the application, which, by the way, was a 112-page document. <laughs> um, we started that process back in May 2015, so it's taken until now, yes. Mm. Well, fantastic work, and uh, I'm sure the benefits will be great. Fred, as always, nice to talk to you, and I'll be turning the lights off now and heading off, and we'll, <laughs> we'll catch up with you again next week. Sounds great. Thanks very much, Andrew. Take care. Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. And you've been listening to Space Nuts. Always good to have your company. Always good to have your feedback. Uh, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Send us your comments and questions. We just love to hear from you. And thanks again for listening. We'll catch you again next week. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com. From Audioboom comes Covert, a new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies, soldiers, and top-secret military operations. I'm Jamie Rennell, and together we'll discover the real stories of history's greatest classified missions, told by the operatives, soldiers, and journalists who experienced it firsthand. Follow Covert on Spotify or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows.